Hey, Kara. <laughs> How are you doing this fine day? I am absolutely fabulous. Is that sarcasm or honesty? It's hard to tell. Well, it's probably a little bit of both. You know, I just realized when I, when I thought about, okay, I'm going to have this conversation with Kara in a few minutes. It seems like every single time we do one of these, I'm complaining about being sore from the gym or something. Mm. So, I mean, I do this to myself. So I'm fine. But I'm also really sore from chainsawing wood and cleaning brush all weekend and allergies. I will inappropriate complain as well. We went for a really nice, so it's a complaint, but also a good thing, a really nice bike ride on Saturday because it was Mm. gorgeous here. And it turned out to be a two and a half hour bike ride after not having ridden my bike for like six months. And so my ass is really sore today. Nice. Like none of my muscles are sore. (laughs) But my ass is sore. But no matter how bad or moody we may be, we're about to change that mood around because today's guest is perhaps the nicest human being on the face of the planet. What if she gets on or she's really grouchy now? She might be grouchy, but last time I spoke to her, she was still the nicest human being on the face of the planet. Like I was thinking if HBA were to do high school style superlative awards... She would win. Nicest yeah. HBA member. Who's, who is it then? Do I know this person? We're just going to keep keeping it a secret. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Until we bring her on now. Uh, so today we're bringing on Dr. Zanita Thayer, who is at Dartmouth. And we've known her for, for years now. And she's not only an amazing human being and kind human being, but just a fantastic scientist all did, around. Did you know she was one of the original HBA writing group members before we met you and you joined I, us? did and i remember an early writing group meeting when i was allowed in to the you know the cool kids club <laughs> where she was talking about something specific that she was doing with writing and i actually just emailed her yesterday about it because i was in a funk and i remember her words from that specific meeting and was just you know seeking some affirmative or affirming advice might be the best way to put it. And of course yeah. she gave it because she's the nicest person ever. Yeah, no, I mean, she's always been a real pleasure to work with. And we've been meaning to get her on the show for a long, long time. Long time. And yeah, because we were supposed to bring her out to University of Albany, but then I left Albany and then pandemic happened and she had a baby and there's just like all of these things. Different order, wanted, but yes. Different order, but yes. Yeah. It's been a long time coming. But I'm really jazzed too because she's got this clinical brief in evolution, medicine, and public health journal. It's an open <laughs> access journal. And you should check it out because it's a great journal. There's lots of cool stuff in it from people that we like and are interested in talking to. And that's, that's in fact what led me to invite her on now because yeah. I thought to myself, one of the things that we like to do is we like to highlight recent research. And I'm all about this journal. I think this journal is wonderful. And I'm trying to prepare a few pieces for it. And their organization, I guess it's the International Society for Evolution, Medicine, and Public Health was supposed to be hosting their annual conference in Athens, Georgia this summer. And I'd been invited by program chair Michael Mullenbein, who I work with and we know to be part of that. And I was really excited because it's international. It moves all over mm-hmm. the country and this, all over the world. And this was an opportunity I could have to, to afford to go. That got canceled like everything else. But I thought, let's see what the current issue has. And when I saw that she had a piece, I got really excited. So we've been, yeah. been wanting to interview for a long time. And it's about assisted reproductive technology. Arch. Which 
art, <laughs> which our listeners have not been paying close attention to our digressions. Mm. They may not know that. They might get edited out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have triplet boys. They're 16 now, but we use assisted reproductive technology to have them. And the experience of going through that was, as she points out in this article, really fucking stressful yeah. and traumatic. And one of the, the goals I had, this was in grad school for me. Uh, my kids were one when I started grad school. So one of the things I have always wanted to do is study the intersection between culture and biology around this. And because I, I just felt there was a lot of hidden cultural and psychological stuff for families underneath using biomedicine in our goals of having families. And mm -hmm. her, as short as it is, it's like one page, her brief nails it, nails that experience. I could talk <laughs> over her the whole time, but I'm going to try not to. <laughs> right, then let's bring her well, and wait, her postdoctoral yeah, student on. Who is our Who is producer. our co-producer. And she's probably, she's not her postdoc anymore. She's a well, brand new assistant professor starting this fall. Yes and no. She, she's not actually going to be starting until January. So she's going to uh, be at Dartmouth through the fall. Gotcha. Uh, as she and I were talking about, it's best not to move to St. Louis, Missouri in the dead of summer, where you will melt into a puddle of humidity sure. and gross. Yeah, it's like being in the South. It'll be my first yeah. July in Alabama, by the way. Wait, wait, wait. First ever? Yeah. How long have you lived there? 10 years, and we never are here in July. We always travel. That makes no, that's crazy to me. No, we never spent a whole year here without visiting family. So That's madness. We got Zane. And we have Teresa. We have her name. And we have Teresa's name. Hello, Zane. Hi, how are you guys? At long last. Hi, Teresa. Hello, it's been a while since we've seen you too. Has. To the show. Uh, as Chris and I were saying, like we've been meaning to get Zane on the show for like a year and a half, <laughs> maybe two years at this point. And it was, you had a baby and then you, we were supposed to invite you out to Albany. And then I left Albany and who knows who picked <laughs> up that slack. And then pandemic happened. <laughs> well, it's nice to finally be with you guys. Yeah. How are you doing? You know, hanging in there in this crazy universe we're living in, just trying to get work done and keep a toddler alive. And pretty much if I end the day and I've done those two things, I feel good about myself. Wait, wait what was the second thing? Keeping the toddler alive. Oh, right, right. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. I've seen that. I've seen that goal on Twitter circulating. Like, if I keep the child alive today, I consider it a success. Everything else yeah. is gravy. Teresa, how are you doing? Good. I've actually been stuck out in Washington State with my family since the pandemic hit. So that's actually, it's been nice though to, you know, socially distance with people I enjoy. So. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Better than being stuck randomly in some place that you didn't. I just heard on NPR somebody saying he was stuck in Ukraine. He'd been there to see his girlfriend, but then he was on his way back and he got stranded away from her, but in Oh no. God. So, like the people on cruise ships that like still can't get off, which I can't even imagine that situation. We were actually in New Zealand when all this happened. because so I've gone on a hunt fellowship this year. So working on a bunch of data from a project I'm working on there. So I was there with the whole family and we had this discussion of, do we stay? Because at the time New Zealand was very calm. There were like no cases. 
and everything was really going pear-shaped. You should have stayed there. They've handled it better than anyone except Taiwan. You'd be safer there. Yeah, we just didn't know how it would go. And I had my toddler with us. And I just had this worst case scenario of having the trip back take 100 hours because we had to take some crazy routes stuck in a quarantine hotel for two weeks with the toddler again it was just too much it was like we have to go back right now and we know we can actually get a relatively direct flight and so we came back but yeah I, all my friends in New Zealand are already back out of quarantine and hanging out again and I'm like, yeah oh. well they've handled it better than anybody I've been emailing back and forth with this New Zealand filmmaker about a documentary he did years ago and he's taunting me about our <laughs> Or state of affairs here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I just spoke with my Finnish collaborators and like all you see is the sympathy on their faces. <laughs> like you poor people in the United States dealing with what you're dealing with. Yeah, we're in Vermont here. And so it's been pretty good, actually. Things have been shut down. And I feel like it's easier to social distance up here because mm. no one lives here. <laughs> So we've got lots of outdoor space. So it's very easy to walk and hike and bike and yeah, not now go completely stir crazy. So I want to ask this question and then we want to back up and start with your oh, yeah. like, <laughs> like where you were when the big bang happened and all that jazz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But where, where do you work in New Zealand? I work in Auckland. Yeah. So that so is I'm, a direct flight. Yeah, direct flight to somewhere in the States. And then usually I can get a direct from there back to Boston. Yeah. So yeah, bad. that when I go to Samoa, I have to go to Auckland and then double mm -hmm. back. So, okay. So Teresa, we're going to put you on hold for just a few minutes. And I mean, not on hold, but I want to explain to listeners why we're not talking to you at first. And then we're going to talk to you more in just a second. And then of course, in a future episode, we're going to have you talk a lot more about you by yourself, right? So <laughs> no offense. Um, That's good. I, but, I'm happy to come back and lurk if you want yeah, to. Yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> but, but one of the things that Karen and I were talking about and that I think sort of is worth us spelling out, we always try to talk about how the Human Biology Association has changed and morphed over the years, what sort of the origin stories are of various people. And we know a lot of our listeners are grad students, but I just thought it was cool to have you on also because you were part of the original HBA writing group that I got started in that sort of pulled me into the Human Biology Association and in many ways pulled me into academia a lot. And then Kara joined that group and that's how mm -hmm. I met her and the podcast really does come out of it. So it's mm -hmm. cool for the origins in that respect. But I don't know anything about you before that writing group. We never actually sat <laughs> down and like- this before yeah, the writing group. I don't we know never had anything an about- story. So your studies are in prenatal health. So start there. What were you like? As a tadpole. As a neonate? As a neonate, <laughs> a neonate when I was gestating. Starting real early. <laughs> so I don't, you know, I have a difficult time recalling my specific time in the womb. But <laughs> given, given what I know of my parents, I'm from California. I grew up in the Central Valley. It was really hot. We were quite poor. <laughs> now that my parents went to college, I think I credit like PBS for introducing me to anthropology. So when I was like five, I told everyone I wanted to be an archaeologist. And then as I got older, I convinced myself that adults know what they're doing. So they must have already found all the cool things. Mm. <laughs> so I couldn't be an archaeologist. And I got really interested in biology, but thought anthropology in general was cool. And then I actually went to Dartmouth for undergrad, which was a huge, crazy reach. Like I'd never been to the East Coast before. 
and then I just applied to this one random East Coast school. Oh, and the, la and the engineering school is called Fair, and that's my last name. I thought that was funny. So I applied <laughs> and got in, and it was amazing. But my freshman fall, I was looking at classes to take, and I saw that there was a course called Introduction to Biological Anthropology. Mm. And I was like, oh, I like biology. I like anthropology. I should give this a try. So I took that freshman fall, and that was it. I was who, like, who this is what I'm doing forever. Ken Corey. So he's since retired, but he was a U Chicago PhD back in the day. Hmm. And it was amazing. So it kind of set me on this trajectory. But our department was quite small at the time. He was the only biological anthropologist. Later, he retired and I had a new advisor, Seth Dobson. Mm -hmm. And so I worked with him and he was great. And we worked on a thesis project together and blah, blah, blah. And it just kind of all took off from there. But I wasn't interested in pregnancy or babies as such in undergrad. My undergraduate thesis was on the adaptive significance of the human chin. Oh, right. Neanderthals. Super, yeah, super, super <laughs> geeky and awesome. So what'd, you, what'd you find? Oh, gosh. <laughs> so the first thing we did was try to quantify chin shape. So I went down to the American Museum of Natural History and did a bunch of outlines on chins. Mm -hmm. And basically, we were trying to test these different adaptive hypotheses for the chin. So the two main hypotheses are this masticatory chewing stress hypothesis mm. or a sexual selection sort of hypothesis. Mm -hmm. So we hypothesize that if the masticatory stress hypothesis is true, then we would not necessarily expect significant differences between the sexes, right? Because we don't necessarily expect dietary toughness to differ. And we sampled from nine different populations, just in case there was one population that's mm. giving their little boys jerky and their, you know, girls like cooked food meal or something. And then we thought that if there was significant sexual dimorphism, then it would be consistent with the sexual selection hypothesis. And so we found that there was significant sexual dimorphism, unsurprisingly perhaps, in chin size and shape. So inconsistent with the masticatory stress, consistent with sexual selection hypothesis, certainly not proof of it. <laughs> but it was kind of a fun yeah. project and introduction into the world of research. I kind of can't believe you remember your undergraduate honors thesis I know, that I'm well. That's what I can't talk about my, un my undergraduate <laughs> thesis that well. It's like, what a sophisticated study, and wow, her memory. Yeah, well, I, that is I can't stunning. remember what I wrote in the paper I sent Kara last week. No, literally, I have to look up the titles of my own publications regularly. <laughs> That's super impressive. Well, I, yeah, in graduate school, actually, I ended up publishing it into two different papers. So those nice. were like my first articles, which was really cool also. Yeah. And kind of <laughs> funny, considering the direction you then I went. know. <laughs> so no. then how did like prenatal and postnatal stress and all that, where did that come from, given you started with chins? Good question. So. And you went to, Nor I'm sorry, but you went yeah. to Northwestern for graduate school as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't see like the chin morphology thing being like <laughs> Northwestern, like, oh, we have to have this. Well, <laughs> but if you get an application from an undergraduate student who's already done a full research paper that is publishable in the two <laughs> papers, you take that student and figure out what they want to do. So the summer before my senior year, so I guess when I was actually in the middle of my chin research, I'd already figured out that I didn't want my research career to be defined by chins <laughs> <laughs> as much as I enjoyed it. And again, there was only one biological anthropologist at the time at Dartmouth. So I, I recognize that my understanding of what the field is in terms of breadth was probably pretty limited. 
So I literally looked at every single anthropologist faculty web page in the country that I could wow. find wow. just to read about different stuff people were doing. How long did that take you? I mean, I did it like all summer. I had a summer job cataloging the bones in the osteology collection at the college. And so, you know, during my breaks and afterwards, yeah, whatever, I just would look up people and get Not ideas. Students. Do this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was it was amazing because it just gave me all these ideas about research that was being done that I hadn't yet come across in my courses. Yeah. And so in the course of doing that, I ran across the work of Chris Kazawa. And I was like, whoa, this is so cool. So I was really interested in evolutionary theory. I was a double major in anthro and bio, and I was really interested in Evo Devo and developmental biology. And so this his work, which focuses on, you know, how prenatal and early life environments can shape biology and uh, developmental plasticity and all of these concepts were super relevant. And so I was like, this is what I want to do. Although really there were kind of two things I was interested in doing like that, or maybe some more morphometric sort of stuff. So I actually applied to some graduate programs looking at that as well. But when I went to Northwestern and met Chris, I knew that was it. So then I went in that direction and that brought me into the life of prenatal research and early life research. So tell us a little bit about what you have been doing over the past several years on that because you you went first to Colorado and now you're back mm -hmm. at Dartmouth mm -hmm. and and you've been working in New Zealand so so tell us about that project and what's going on there. Yeah so I guess I'll say that again when I started working in the space of prenatal early life influences on biology and health, it was very much motivated by an evolutionary perspective and interest in developmental plasticity. And I maintained those interests. However, it actually working with and talking to pregnant ladies <laughs> and that are real people. No. I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I realized that if I'm thinking about something like stress, like stress is very influenced by patterns of inequality within society, right? And so that has become actually a really big theme in my research. So to me, it's kind of ironic because as I mentioned earlier, I grew up in a pretty poor household. <laughs> and so it's kind of ironic to me that I've like come back to studying how like poor early households and environments can influence biology and health because that's really not where I started. And so I've, I've tried to maintain in my work these separate, but I think complementary kind of approaches to understanding human biology and health looking at how current environments, which are shaped by, influenced by inequality, influence biology, but also why are humans sensitive to those exposures in the first place? And that's where the evolutionary piece kind of comes in. So I'm working in New Zealand still. For my dissertation, I started my own birth cohort, which was a lot of work, <laughs> and generated a you know modest sample size. Since then, I've started collaborating with the Growing Up in New Zealand study, which is similarly a birth cohort study started at the same time, actually, hmm. in and around Auckland, but there are 6,800 women involved in the study. Hmm. So it's a really amazing and awesome opportunity because this is a cultural context where I've been working for a really long time, right? I did one-on-one -on -one interviews with a lot of women. And I feel like I understand it relatively well, but now I get to work with a study that has really great resources and statistical power. <laughs> so why did so you choose New Zealand? Zealand? Yeah, the same question. Yeah, how did that come about? So uh, I have a personal and a professional answer. I don't know what's the appropriate. Both. <laughs> Both, because they're true. Um, 
So personally, my dad is an old surf bum, hence mm. the not having a lot of money. <laughs> and he and his mom's actually Australian. So he had a draw, I think, to the South Pacific. Mm -hmm. And so he did like nine endless summers in the South Pacific, including New Zealand. Nice. So I always heard about it as the best place in the world growing up. But of course, we never got to go. <laughs> um, and I guess I should add, one of the reasons why I also applied to Dartmouth was because they had an anthropology foreign study program that goes to New Zealand. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. And so I was like, I think I want to study anthropology and I want to go to New Zealand. <laughs> so I, I did that program when I was an undergrad and absolutely loved it. And now actually, I'm supposed to be leading that program this winter if the world oh, opens maybe. up again. Yeah. Cool. So what's the professional reason? Uh, the professional reason is that, I mean, given my interest in inequality and studying things like poverty and discrimination, Auckland is a really interesting place to work because here you have a cultural context where, you know, they're, they're quite socialist, like there's equal access to healthcare, and yet you have these really stark health disparities among groups. With respect to discrimination, because I've done a lot of studies trying to understand impacts of discrimination on health as well, Auckland is a really multicultural city. So it's, I think, 40% immigrants. And if you look at immigrants and children of immigrants, it's like 58% of the population. So included in that is a relatively large population, Maori, which are about 15% of the population. There's also a lot of Polynesians, as you would know. So Auckland is the largest Polynesian population in the world. And then recently, there's been a lot of immigration from Asia as well, from um, China and India. And so it's a very diverse city. And so I think it's a really interesting place to study you know, the health impacts of discrimination because it's a very different cultural context than here in the United States, where a lot of that research is done. So as you know, like eight years ago, or whenever when we met, you talking about New Zealand was just like, I have zero, zero idea, like <laughs> image of, of what it was. And, and in just, just that short period of time and, and to sort of relate to what you're saying, you know, like I always wanted to work someplace just culturally different and mm -hmm. interesting and the South Pacific mm -hmm. sounded wonderful. So when I had the opportunity to go to the South Pacific to work in the Samoan Islands, of course I went because I just wanted to go there because mm -hmm. I'd always heard so much about them. And then once I, I got there, one, aside from the transfer in the airport, I've never been to New Zealand, but New Zealand looms so large in Samoa because mm -hmm. it, Samoa was a colony of New Zealand for, for so long. So like it's it's practically like they're they're bound at the hip. Like mm -hmm. everybody there is going back and forth to New Zealand or Hawaii and, mm -hmm. and, and all the time. But once I started doing the research there, I found how important the South Pacific has been in just the, the development of anthropology as a discipline and how some of the most important works in anthropology have, have come out of there for a variety of reasons, mm -hmm. some of which you just mentioned, right? Mm -hmm. So that makes perfect sense to me. And so you have this really wonderful research focus on early life stressors, maternal stress, and then the impact on children. And you worked with this birth cohort in New Zealand. Uh, but in this paper that you sent us, which is Assisted Reproductive Technology, Psychosocial Stress, and Low Birth Weight, it's similar, but also like a different vein, where this is not <laughs> something that like is New Zealand specific or your birth cohort specific study. So before we actually get into the details of what this is saying, how did this even come about, this interest in assisted reproductive technologies and trying to assess why we see lower birth rates in, in children who are- Lower birth weight. Lower birth weight, what did I say? Rates. 
oh, wait, wait, <laughs> lower birth, wait. Uh, and you know, why we see this pattern with uh, children conceived this way. Yeah, so I think what I would say first is that I'm really motivated by questions in general, right? And then I try to figure out the best way to answer those questions. And so a lot of questions I've been interested in, I'm able to address with this New Zealand cohort, which is amazing. But I'm constantly trying to figure out what are other data that I can collect or existing data sources that are available that I can use to answer questions that I'm interested in. And so with respect to assisted reproductive technologies, that's actually an interest that really grew out of, well, two things. One, a course I'm teaching at Dartmouth. So it's called Evolution of Pregnancy, Birth, and Babies, hmm. um, which I actually inherited from Amanda Viley. So when she was at Dartmouth, she created the course and it was on the books. And I was like, yeah, I, I study pregnancy. I should teach that. And also, didn't you teach it while pregnant? Like yes. adding a dimension to it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when I taught the course the first time, I was in my third trimester of pregnancy, which was like a really meta experience. My students were amazing. It was a seminar. And then when I taught it again, I was still like breastfeeding, right? So it was like, <laughs> and I could talk to them about my birth experience retrospectively. So that's been a really fun class. The students have connected. But in any case, in the course of that course, one of the days I talk about assisted reproductive technologies. So that was my first kind of interest in the literature around yeah. But then, of course, on a personal level, I have lots of friends now who have been going through this experience. And so in talking to them, it's very clear that for many people, this can be a very stressful experience, right? And so I started just doing some research to try and understand, like, what is the literature around stress in art? And there's a lot of research talking about it. Then I looked at some research about kind of long-term outcomes, right? Because again, I study stress. Well, if you're stressed in pregnancy, like that might affect you and your baby. <laughs> but in all my years of studying pregnancy stress, I've never seen anyone talk about art-related stress as a stressor we should be paying attention to or thinking about. Oh, so there's lots of research on stress in pregnancy, but no research on stress in art pregnancies. So there are there is research about stress in art pregnancies, but none of which connects that to like health outcomes in the next gotcha. generation. Gotcha. So independently now, pretty recently, there have been some studies talking about things like low birth weight and art mm -hmm. babies, right? Or even long-term, you know, cardiovascular disease, chronic disease sorts of outcomes and some art babies. But that has not been connected at all to this stress research. It's all been attributed to processes specific to art itself. So something about media culture, right? Or something about the actual process, physical process mm -hmm. of art and not at all about the psychosocial impacts. And the more I dug and dug talking to people and asked friends about their experiences, it seemed that, you know, it's not necessarily common for providers to ask about stress or how you're doing <laughs> and talking to people who work in this art stress research space specifically they said that the outcomes that they're really interested in are pregnancy success rate, right? <laughs> Whether or not you have the baby, yeah. but, then, but then that's it, right? They, they aren't necessarily concerned with the birth outcomes or long-term effects. Mm -hmm. And so to me, it just, what I wanted to do with that piece and a project I you know, would love to develop at some point is actually thinking about whether and how psychosocial stress associated with art could actually be contributing to these outcomes with the ultimate goal being that we should provide mental health support for people mm -hmm. who are going through this, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, we have, we're providing the technologies to help people have babies, which is amazing. But maybe as part of that standard of care, we should also actually be checking in with them to see how they're doing. <laughs> 
Man, we just, so I shared at the beginning when we were introducing that I have triplets who are now 16, so mm -hmm. who were conceived through intrauterine insemination. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the, the interests that I have has always been in this stress as well, mm -hmm. because it was extraordinarily stressful. But also, I'm, I, I'm like, I don't know if I want to know if there are going to be <laughs> long-term consequences to the low birth weight. And, and I wonder how you parse out uh, the higher rate of high-order multiples in assisted reproductive technology and, and the low birth weight just generally associated with being born premature because you're a multiple. I agree with you completely. So the data, so I should say first, I've spent a long time trying to find good data to support this. And it's been difficult because people don't think it's important, right? So like the people who are studying stress amongst art couples don't tend to collect or share or report birth, out, birth weight sort of information. They just report pregnancy success rate, like live birth. But what I have tried to focus on are data talking about singleton offspring, mm -hmm. because uh, you're absolutely right that if you have multiple pregnancy, then the babies are going to be born smaller and earlier. And so data that reports specifically singleton pregnancies and births show that those individuals are more likely to be born with lower birth weight and earlier. So that gives me more confidence that these effects could be independent of sure. those other effects. And then the one study that I, sh that I reference in that clinical brief is a study of uh, couples who are undergoing IVF. And so these are women who all have singleton preg pregnancies. And within that cohort of individuals, those who have higher depression or anxiety are significantly more likely to give birth to a baby who's low birth weight mm -hmm. relative to women who are also having IVF but don't have depression anxiety. So to me, that was very supportive evidence, certainly not conclusive, but I hope that in you know, producing that brief that people might think to go back, like maybe they already have those data, it would be great for them to report them. And you know, a lot of these studies are quite small, so maybe the uh, effect sizes aren't large enough for them to be significant, but uh, maybe we can get data from multiple studies and do kind of a meta-analysis to see if there's any sorts of effects. I would also suspect that there would be a dose response because I've, mm -hmm. IVF is generally the last thing you, you do mm -hmm. after, mm -hmm. I forget the medication that they, they use to stimulate follicle development mm -hmm. first, and then IUI is second. Mm -hmm. And then IVF is the last thing. And you can have multiple cycles mm -hmm. of, of any of those, depending on your insurance, mm -hmm. each one of which is stressful mm -hmm. and anxiety producing. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. this worry that, well, I want to try this again before I go on to that, because if that doesn't work, that's the last thing I have left to do before mm -hmm. I, I have to give up and try another route. Just to add a layer of difficulty onto it again, because of my own experience. And I, I see your point about focusing on singletons for a, an elegant research mm -hmm. model. But one of the things that reproductive endocrinology does is suggest reduction mm -hmm. uh, for people who have mm -hmm. higher order multiples mm -hmm. because they want success rate stats that reflect singleton births, mm -hmm. not the scary high order multiples that are mm -hmm. actually associated with ART because people don't mm -hmm. wanna pay for that so mm -hmm. that level of stress for us was the worst was like mm -hmm. having them say you should reduce now that you have three <laughs> so that our stats look better and what they told us was not that they would make their stats look better but that it would be easier for us to love 
and take care of. No. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like seriously, they said uh, seriously. to love? Yeah. 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 Wow. Harder to, we only have a finite amount of love. My goodness. Yikes. That's so, per- Personal anecdote there. Yikes. So I, I have mixed feelings. Like I really want to study this also, but then after mm. a certain point, I was like, I'm right in the middle of it. I'm very <laughs> biased about this. Yeah. Experience. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. And I mean, I, I think that I'm really trying to, in this project, to approach it in a way that's hopefully as useful for people as possible. Mm-hmm. So hopefully advocating for increased access to resources, right? Mm-hmm. And, and trying to focus more on that end and hopefully scaring everyone to think that they're, you know, going to be in bad shape because, I mean, art is amazing and the majority yeah. of babies that are born are absolutely great, right? So we're yeah. talking about population level statistics. Yeah. No, it's just, I, I think what you said was really, really smart about, you know, this clinical brief. And a lot of people who listen might not be aware of what a clinical brief is, but it's like, what, 600 words, 800 yes, words? So it's hard. super Six, short. 600 it's like, words with references. With references. So it's like, you know just over a page basically (laughs) which is not what we're used to writing but you describing it as a call for people to either collect the data or Mm. if they already have it to get it out there Mm. that's such a wonderful place to start because my guess is that data does Mm, yeah and it just needs to be made more available so these hypotheses can be tested to then of course do exactly what you just said is try to find a way to build resources and you know get them out there so that's really awesome and so now we're going to totally shift gears and we can bring, <laughs> we can bring Teresa out of lurking if she wants to join, uh, because you two are collaborating on a COVID-19 related study, correct? We are. All right, Teresa, do you want to tell us a little bit about that project? Sure. The project is called the COVID-19 and Reproductive Effects or CARE Study. And this came about because we were trying to figure out how we as biological anthropologists can lend our expertise since... We obviously have a role in terms of looking at not just the biological, but also the cultural role and how those are interacting to influence health outcomes. So just conversations with Zane about how best we could use our resources and skills. And given Zane's expertise and our shared interest in biocultural health determinants and potential negative health effects of stress during pregnancy, as Zane was just discussing, focusing on women who are pregnant during COVID-19 seemed to make sense since they're potentially a vulnerable population that hasn't really been looked at much to date. And so trying to address that. And I think we've been really surprised by the amount of enthusiasm and really humbled as well as amount of, of data we've been getting and people who've been really enthusiastic about the study and just looking at trying to determine how this unprecedented situation is really impacting access to care and people's thoughts and decisions about what they prefer and given the situation and their fears and how they're trying to ensure the health of their families and themselves. So give us some specifics. I remember seeing the survey, but I don't remember the details. And obviously we're all socially distancing, so this has to be an online survey, I assume, right? We're focused on American women over the age of 18. We're trying to think of ways to do in the future, maybe some biomarker stress data collection, but right now it's all online through surveys for safety reasons. Yeah, so we're, we're recruiting nationally. We do collect information on zip codes, so we've been able to generate some maps, and we see that we have pretty good participant spread across the country, which is nice. But really, we're trying to understand how COVID-19 is impacting women's experiences with health care, access to health care, their stress in pregnancy, their satisfaction with their providers. There's two questionnaires currently, so one's during pregnancy, mm. and then women have the option of consenting to a follow-up questionnaire as well. So if they choose to do that, then we do a follow-up questionnaire and we collect birth outcome information. We basically ask about how their birth experience was. 
And then we also ask about postpartum support hmm. um, because we're quite interested as well in how the pandemic is affecting women's access to, you know, help from others. Because a lot of times mm-hmm. if you have a baby, people come by and bring food and hold the baby so you can take a shower. Um, and now it's much more difficult for people to access that. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so those are the sorts of things we're trying to understand. And then as Teresa mentioned, we're trying to figure out a way where we can get some minimally, hopefully minimally invasive biomarkers to look at some stress levels, but it's all a bit tricky in this pandemic world. This goes back to something I think we spoke to Barry Bogan about, like the long-term stress of COVID-19 mm-hmm. and what pregnant mothers are experiencing right now because of economic stress, just Absolutely. basic isolation stress, and what that will mean for like the birth cohort across yep. the world this year, next year, and I mean, probably for the next decade, given the economic implications that we're mm-hmm. probably going to be feeling for quite some time. Yeah. So you've basically captured a new birth cohort in your survey that you can follow up on for years to come to see the effect of COVID-19. Holy shit. That's the plan. Fucking ingenious. (laughs) Yeah. So that's why we were trying to catch women in pregnancy. And it was a bit of a back and forth because we thought about opening it up to anyone, but we really wanted to be able to have a survey in pregnancy where we could kind of get a (laughs) timestamp of this is how women were actually feeling at this time and then be able to follow them up afterwards. I imagine that survey will definitely ask birth weights. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> we definitely ask about birth outcome information. Have you, I mean, this, I guess, relates back a little bit to what you were talking about, but also the impact of COVID-19 on folks who were just starting or in the middle of assisted reproductive technology. <sighs> I can't imagine what's I going. know. I was just talking to a friend about that yesterday, actually. So it's not something we address in our study, but mm. I have thought about that a lot about people who are going through these procedures and it's all very, you know, closely timed and, yeah, you know, you read these horror stories about folks getting cut off just the days before their procedure and there's already so much stress about timing and mm-hmm. what else do you have on your massive research plate? <laughs> what else is coming up? Well, I'm actually on the Hunt Fellowship right now. <laughs> so I was working on that diligently in New Zealand before I made my mass exodus. And so that is actually, that project is a series of articles looking at the intergenerational effects of racial discrimination in New Zealand. Mm. So I kind of alluded to this earlier. The first paper's already come out where we find that in New Zealand, there's actually quite high prevalence of discrimination experience among women of all ethnicities. But what we found that was interesting well, and sad is that for Maori women specifically, so indigenous women in New Zealand, women who reported experiencing ethnic discrimination had significantly lower birth weight than Maori women not reporting those experiences. Hmm. Significantly lower birth weight and significantly shorter gestation Hmm. um, with pretty large effect sizes too. So so that paper's out already. The next paper that I'm working on that'll hopefully go on review soon is looking at telomere length in the children. So looking at discrimination measured in pregnancy and then telomere length in kids at four and a half years of age. And actually, once again, we find that it's Maori kids specifically who their kids have significantly shorter telomere length if the mom reports having experienced. Real briefly, for, for folks not in the know, what is a telomere? Uh, and yeah. Why does it matter? Yeah, yeah. So telomeres are the caps on the ends of chromosomes. Every time your cell divides, they get a little bit shorter. And so people use them as an indicator of cellular aging. And so uh, the thought is that accelerated shortening 
could be bad, right? It's associated with premature aging, if you will. And so the takeaway from that is that kids whose moms experience discrimination are experiencing basically accelerated cellular aging. Mm -hmm. Thank you. <laughs> yes, no, good, good call out. <laughs> so, so those are the ones we have done so far. And then the last one is actually looking at maternal discrimination in relation to kids' methylation, DNA methylation, which is a type of epigenetic modification. And that one's still a little bit earlier because I got kicked out of the country. Well, I left the country early. Kicked so. out. <laughs> you make it sound so scandalous. No, I didn't get kicked out. I left. I fled. I fled the country because of COVID. So I wouldn't get stuck in a quarantine hotel with my toddler. <laughs> so that was on fair. pause. That was on pause fair. for a few months. And so because of that, I've had time to work on this COVID study, for example, mm -hmm. which is great. And I'm hoping that Wintergren forgives me. But but so you so you left the country with the good COVID response and to the one with the shitty one and now you're never gonna be allowed back in. But she's also doesn't have to live in a hotel with a toddler. I There's mean. that. There's that. Yeah, yeah. Trade offs, Fair. trade offs. And Teresa, because you've got super exciting news about what's next for you. Care to share? Sure, yeah. So <laughs> I'll be transitioning, so I'm starting a position as an assistant professor at WashU, Washington University in St. Louis, uh, starting in January. So I'm very, very grateful for that. My PhD alma mater. Yes. You know. Very exciting. We are uh, going to miss her at Dartmouth. I can imagine. One quick sidebar question before we transition to closing. So you mentioned the, the high diversity and uh, immigration in Auckland. There's some tension between Samoan and Chinese, and specifically mm -hmm. because of economics. And you hear about this sort of in, in national politics with the way China subsidizes uh, businesses in mm -hmm. places around the world and, and how that influence can give them a foothold there and in Samoa, there's, there's a considerable amount of tension about that. I wonder if you have similar experiences in New Zealand. Yeah, very much so. So in New Zealand, a lot of the, I guess I'll call it xenophobia, is what it is, particularly to Chinese immigrants, is I think in part an, a consequence of the way that immigration works in New Zealand. So since 1986, New Zealand's immigration changed from a preferential source like country thing where if you come from certain countries you're allowed to immigrate to a points-based system where you can immigrate if you've got a lot of money or have certain skills mm. and so because of that that really opened up the market to asia right and so and in recent years to china so there's a lot of very wealthy people from china who have immigrated to new zealand and so there's a perception that they're driving up home prices, right? Um, mm. So housing prices in Auckland are unbelievable. It's like the third most expensive place in the world to buy a home oh, now. Wow. wow. And so that's led to a lot of resentment. But I mean, what I think is quite unfortunate about that is that the only way to immigrate to New Zealand is to be wealthy, <laughs> right? Like that's the way it's set up to have to be skilled, to have a certain skill they want or to be wealthy. Mm. And so it, I think it's a really interesting example of how political, right? policy things can actually influence the culture, right? Yeah. Um, Do you see that changing at all with the, the fairly new president? So Prime Minister Ardern with- Sorry, um, Prime Minister. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. So when she became Prime Minister, she did change where 
they made it more difficult for overseas buyers to buy homes because there was a New Zealand Herald report, it was a couple of years ago now, maybe two or three years, when the market was really just like going up and up and up astronomically. I remember it said seven out of 10 buyers, home buyers in Auckland had a Chinese surname and four out of 10 of those buyers were overseas. And so when her government came in, one of the things they did was they made it more difficult for overseas buyers to buy. Although I've heard that it's still possible, of course, to find ways to work around this. But the market has slowed down, which is good. It was, it's unbelievably inflated, some might say. And it will be interesting to see what happens with COVID. While they have been able to stamp it out, it's not without costs. Tourism is the second largest industry in the country of New Zealand. And right now they're not allowing anyone who's not a citizen or resident to come into New Zealand. So there might be some substantial economic impacts of this, and it could affect housing prices. But I'm not an economist. <laughs> no, but the political economy is really, I mean, this, the, we, we, we do biocultural research, mm. but as we've been chastised by our colleagues over the years, we need to consider the politics and Absolutely. economics mm. of all mm-hmm. these places that we work. Anyway, Zane, what do you do for fun when uh, in all of your free time? <laughs> When you're not working from home, keeping a toddler alive. Well, I mean, to be honest, <laughs> at the moment, it's really, we're kind of in survival mode. So my husband also has a full-time job. He's also working from home. And so I'm usually on the morning shift, like six to noon with the toddler while he works. And then she naps and I start working. And then I work till like six or until I'm really tired. <laughs> and it's hard because I start working at noon and I've already been watching a toddler for six hours. And yes. I'm like, now I'm starting my work day now. Yes. <laughs> but since the weather has gotten nicer, I've been trying to get outside with her, which feels a lot better. So for example, like the Appalachian Trail goes literally like mm-hmm. down our street, well, down nice. a block from here. And so last week- It I ends took, in Alabama, so come, come see. Nice, me. yeah, let's hang out sometime. I'll see you in a couple months. Right. <laughs> so yeah, I went walking with her on the AT one morning. We just got an e-bike so I can go on long bike rides with her because I had just a seat on my bike with her and it's very heavy to go up and down hills mm-hmm. with the toddler. And so an e-bike is, it just gives you a little boost. Oh, so you're still okay. biking and you can still bike as hard as you want, but when you're going up really big hills, you can just, you know, Get okay. a little assistance. Gotcha. We're just trying to get outside as much as possible. You know, I'm, I'm weeding. We haven't weeded in years because we're too busy. And now I'm like, I'm home in the morning so she can play in the yard and I'll weed or watch <laughs> me stack wood. So really I'm trying to like <laughs> be outside and do housework while watching a toddler. So maybe our house will look better than it ever did. We definitely <laughs> stacked wood faster than we ever have before. Well, sounds pretty much like what I do for fun, <laughs> minus the toddler part. <laughs> Teresa, that's what fun. about that's you? fun, right? Go ahead, Teresa. My strategy is also getting outside. So I've been running, especially when you're, you know, in social distancing and inside all the time. Just getting outside has been key, I think, for mental health. So yeah, I've I've really been into running. I got into running more in grad school and just been been kind of my go-to where I can process a problem on a long run or you know, just yeah. really get rest relief. So that's my go-to usually. So we'll ask this of, of Zane first. One, are you looking for any students coming up? Uh, because application season is sadly right around the corner. <laughs> uh, time means nothing anymore. Didn't we discuss this? So I have a wonderful student now, Chloe Sweetman. She's finishing her first year, but I'm definitely open to taking another student this fall. So, we know Chloe. Um, I didn't know she ended up with you. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. 
So I will say at Dartmouth, we have our PhD program is an uh, integrative program between biology, anthropology, environmental studies, and geography. So it's a great fit for the right kind of student. Yeah. Right? It's not a PhD in anthropology, but for a student who has a lot of you know, evolutionary interests and, and or overlap with environmental studies or geography, it can be a really great fit. Perfect. And how can they, anyone who might be interested, find out more? So there is a website called EEES, Ecology, Evolution, Ecosystem, and Society program at Dartmouth. So they can check that out. And then also, of course, email me. And I'm always happy to talk to students to figure out if it would be a good fit for everyone. Awesome. And Teresa, I imagine there's no way you're going to be wanting to look at graduate student applications just yet in your first year. Not quite yet, especially because I'm in the winter. So a little time to get situated, but then definitely after I'm settled, I would definitely be interested in that for sure. Awesome. Thank you both so, so much. Zane, I'm so glad we finally got you on the show uh, and that you took time away from what I know is your like short window of work. <laughs> so we really do appreciate it. It was really great talking to you guys. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Thank you both. Stay safe. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Sausage of Science with Chris and Kara. I'm one of the associate producers, Teresa Gilner. This show would not be possible without the support of the American Journal of Human Biology and the Human Biology Association. Be sure to check out the most recent issue of the American Journal of Human Biology and stay posted for our weekly podcast episodes. Please like us, rate us, share us, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.